0: I'm a big basketball fan, and this past weekend I watched three games. Before each game, the network showing the games had a studio show where the upcoming game was analyzed. After the studio show was done, the camera shifted to the arena itself, where the crew announcing the upcoming game analyzed it yet again. In this orgy of analysis, one phrase came up in the analysis of every single game, and that was, tonight's matchup will be a battle of contrasting styles. That phrase is interesting to me, because in these games you had two teams. Both are playing the same game, both have the same goal of winning, and both are playing by the same set of rules. And yet they go about solving the problem of how to win in different ways. Of course, not every basketball game features a contrast of two styles, but it does happen a lot. And this isn't just a basketball phenomenon. You see this sort of thing in every sport that I can think of. It also isn't just a sports thing either. Companies competing in the same industry often have different business models. Political campaigns will employ different styles to attract votes. In geopolitics, nations will employ different strategies to achieve the goals of their governments. It reminds me of a phrase attributed to the Greek poet Archilochus in 600 BC. He wrote, The fox knows many little things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. A couple of points about that quote. First, I apologize to the descendants of Archilochus if I mispronounced his name. Second, it isn't obvious to me whether the fox or the hedgehog is more likely to be successful. My guess is that it depends on the situation and the specific problem to be solved. My name is Mark Riepe. I head up the Schwab Center for Financial Research, and this is Financial Decoder. It's a podcast about financial decision-making and the cognitive and emotional biases that can cloud our judgment. One financial decision is how to manage a portfolio. Most people, in effect, hire a manager to manage the bulk of the assets in their portfolios. That's essentially what you're doing when you buy shares in mutual funds or an exchange-traded fund, or give discretion to an advisor when you open a separately managed account. Before you hire someone to manage your money, or any job for that matter, it's prudent to spend some time understanding their approach before you commit to using them. In the world of money management, there are various approaches, but many fall into either the active management camp or the indexing camp. On this episode, I'm going to talk with managers from two firms. One firm is, in my opinion, a superior practitioner of active management, and the other is a manager from one of the fastest-growing index firms. After you listen to these two interviews, I hope you come away with two things. First, a better understanding of the decisions fund managers have to make so that you can be better informed when hiring managers for your own portfolios. And second, a few tips on how to manage the part of your portfolio where you make all your own decisions. Joining me now is David Giroux. David is a portfolio manager at T. Rowe Price Investment Management. He also is the head of investment strategy and chief investment officer for T. Rowe Price Investment Management. David, thanks for being on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to it. David, before we get, kind of get into the meat of the discussion, uh, maybe could you just you know spend a minute telling me a little bit about how you got into this business? Were you one of those kids who was just always interested in the stock market, or is this something that you uh, kind of evolved into over time?
1: Actually, I really didn't get interested in the stock market until really my junior year of, of college. I, I really spent no time thinking about the stock market at all. Uh, I had... Um, yeah, basically, my my junior year, I decided I was going to be, you know, or my sophomore year, I guess I was going to be a a business major, uh, and I took some classes with some great professors, a guy named Jack, Jack Parham and uh, another guy by the name of Howard Morris, and they really introduced me to the stock market. They had such a passion for it that it really led me to read everything I could possibly read about investing, every book by Ben Graham or about Warren Buffett or David Dreman. And, and just really try to learn all I could about the stock market. And It, just, it, was, a, it was a passion from the start, uh, from the market. And really soon after that, I, I decided I, I really wanted to do invest for the rest of my life. Um, and so I, I, luckily, I had the opportunity to come join T. Rowe Price in 1998 as an associate analyst. Uh, got promoted to an analyst 18 months later, and six, months, six years after that, I was a portfolio manager, which is what I've been doing for the last uh, 16 years now.
0: Uh, so now that you're a kind of a professional investor and you've, you've seen the process of investing from a lot of different angles over the years, uh, maybe give, give us a quick description of what your kind of day-to-day job is like.
1: Well, it's it's, it's interesting. The, the day-to-day job changes, it's nothing, no, no one day is the same, right? So like for today, for example, right? I had two companies report their earnings for their fourth quarter. We went, listened to both those calls, uh, you know, made made some decisions around what should we do it. Was there anything unique to the thesis, our numbers? Uh one one name we added to today, and, you know, that uh, that was at a little bit of week on their numbers, uh, for some short term issues. Uh we we just got I literally just got out of a management meeting with one of our largest holding It was in our office, spent an hour with him talking about their business, uh talking about capital allocation. Uh so you know the, you know, if you think about what I'm doing, I I'm looking I'm 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 working in terms of Trying to identify new ideas, both in the fixed income portfolio as well in the equity portfolio, to that have really good risk-adjusted returns. Uh, I'm trying to make a decision around, you know, should we be adding to risk assets? Should we take risk assets off the from a portfolio perspective? Um, But you know,
0: no one day is the same. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, um, you know what you just described. You're gathering uh, in collecting all this information and at the end of the day you've got to make some decisions what to buy what to sell so what's your uh, what's the process for turning that information into uh, into a decision
1: oh sure I mean there, I, what, what I would tell you is there's just multiple different decisions that we have to be made uh, so you know one of the one of the, the one of the things we, we think a lot about is we, we kind of we for every company in the portfolio on an equity side we will build out a five-year kind of internal rate of return expectation. That's really simply basically looking at the earnings power today, looking at that earnings power five years in the future, assigning what we believe is hopefully a conservative uh, relative valuation to that company relative to the market. So if the market's at 18 or 17, this company will trade for 15 or 20, and kind of you know basically generating an internal rate of return and monitoring that rate of return and making sure we understand the risk-adjusted return as well of that company. And you know, again, when thing when those those IRs get really, really high for a company, you're usually adding to it. When those IRs get a little bit lower for a company, you're usually uh, probably cutting it back a little bit. So that that IR process is is really important uh, in terms of you know in terms of the process. Now from a fixed income versus equity allocation perspective, we are always kind of shifting that based on the environment. So we tend to be kind of very uh Counter cyclical uh, in terms of how we invest in periods of time where rates are low, you won't see us owning any treasuries. Uh, uh, you'll see us having a lot of leveraged loans when 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 rates are when rates are low. Uh, when rates are higher, you, you'll see us buying treasuries. Uh, when e- when the equity market is is falling off a cliff, like it did during in February and March of 2020, we're taking cash down and we're adding equities.
0: One of the themes of the the podcast is that. Uh, at the end of the day, we're all prone to making uh, certain decision-making errors. Uh, nobody's uh, nobody's perfect. And one of the interesting aspects of working for a kind of a large uh, company like T. Rowe Price is uh, you've got the capabilities of putting in a lot of processes to guardrails, if you will, to kind of protect against any decision-making biases of any one individual. Could you to describe some of those guardrails a little bit?
1: Oh, sure. So... At the tiro price level, or, the, or you know, uh, we we would have guardrails around, you know, there uh, we have steering committees that the review the holdings of uh, every portfolio manager every quarter and ask questions of those portfolio managers. Um, we have risk analyses that we see uh, every day, in some cases, and then we, we have a, a risk review of the portfolio, make sure we're aware of our risks. Uh, again, every 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 we see the data every day, but we have a, we have a full review every. Uh, Every quarter, as well as we we look at the portfolio through an ESG lens, once a quarter as well. ESG is an important uh, consideration uh, today, and so we we look at it through an ESG lens. But I would also tell you that you know portfolio managers have a lot of flexibility, right? So the you know the way my portfolio might be positioned could be very very different than the way another person's uh, portfolio is positioned. Even though I'm CIO at at Terpum, or the T Row Price Investment Management, I'm not dictating. Have economic projections or interest rate projections, and that every other portfolio manager needs to follow through on that. That's not how we work. We are a bottoms up shop. We focus on trying to find really attractive risk reward opportunities in equities and fixed income, and we're not we're not a macro shop. So I, I'm not spending time th- saying, okay, what's the GDP going to be? Therefore, let's go buy that stock. That's not that's not that's not how you create value in equities. Uh, and I don't think really any no one has any real strong edge on that so we we want to have a lot of analytics to tell us, are we doing what we should be doing at this point in time? Is our portfolio positioned like we want it to be positioned uh, both on a from a long-term basis but from a
0: tactical perspective as well? so as you uh, when you're going through your kind of bottom up process of analyzing individual companies, presumably you get to a point where you've got a lot of different buy candidates, but you can't buy everything. Uh, Similarly, there'll be times when maybe you know large parts of the portfolio maybe look less attractive than they did when you originally uh, bought them, but you don't necessarily want to sell out of everything. So how do you how do you translate your your analytical process into then specific decisions on specific companies about which ones to buy and which ones to sell?
1: Okay, sure, great question. So what what I would tell you is, you think about the SP 500. Yes, five hundred companies in the market, obviously, but we're not going to touch probably about 400 of those companies. We're not gonna touch companies where the valuation is just excessive. We're not gonna touch companies that have poor capital allocation. We're not gonna touch companies that can't grow earnings or combination of earnings and dividends at a high single digit rate over time. Uh, We're not gonna buy buy empire builders. We're not gonna buy companies that have super cyclical business models. We're not gonna buy companies that have secular risk. If you take out all those kind of bad companies, if you will, it leaves you with a universe of about a hundred names, and for those hundred names, we do a lot of analytics around those names constantly. Uh, and what you what you would find over time, when you look at our portfolio, is you know even though we will, we typically only own forty to fifty stocks at a time, you know some stocks will come in, some stocks will come out, but that hundred doesn't change that dramatically. Uh, so we we are constantly saying what is the where is there value in the marketplace. Where's the best risk reward in the marketplace? And we don't really care what the market's telling us what we should do. We're gonna, we're gonna take a little bit longer time horizon and say over a five year view, we think these these can, be really, these can be really good returns. And that just naturally, what you find is when things feel good, we own a lot of utilities and staples and lower risk stocks. And when the market falls out of bed and the market goes down 25%, we're adding cyclicals. And then
0: we kind of repeat the process. Uh, another thing you've got to do, in addition to identifying the names, is deciding how much weight in the portfolio to put on each one of those names. So, uh, how, how do you go about making that decision?
1: It's a great question. So, it's not simply the uh, the return, right? Uh, it, it is a combination of a kind of like four or five factors. So, it's it's you're looking at the return, expected return in the next five years, the risk just return, the range of outcomes, right? Some companies have a very narrow range of outcomes. The utility, you know, when we think about some of our utilities, I'm not going to mention them today, but some of our utilities, these are companies that will grow earnings of seven percent per year. We have a high twos dividend. We give you a, a 10% return over time. And it's it's it, the range of outcomes is very, very narrow. A semiconductor company, a um, you know a high growth company, you know, the, the range of outcomes is wider. So the uh, the the larger the range of outcomes, I mean you, you mitigate the size of the position size there. And then there's also a question of like the quality of the management team, you know, how good is the capital allocation? And honestly, is this something you want to own for the next 20 years? So you 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 probably give you have a larger benefit of something that you would that'll be highly likely to still be in the portfolio in I don't know, twenty forty three.
0: You do mention that you'd started out your career as a, as an analyst. And so uh, presumably now that you're sitting in the portfolio manager's seat, uh, you've got analysts who are pitching you different ideas. You're talking to other colleagues that, you know, who are managing other, uh, you know, other funds, and they've got a perspective on, on different companies. Uh, when you have a, a kind of a disagreement with the, 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 the people who are working closely on the fund, how do you, at the end of the day, how do you resolve that?
1: We have a very large team that works directly with me. And again, what, what you would find is, you know, we, we do have agreement. We do have disagreements. They, they, my team pushes me to be better. They 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 have perspectives, but I think what's nice about it our 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 interactions Mark are that we all have the same playbook. We we know the same market inefficiencies. We might have a you know we have a, a modest disagreement, but those disagreements are not are not it's it's things on the margin right for the most part. If you if you have the same underlying philosophy, the same underlying process, you you look at the world the same way as I do, which everybody on the team does. You know that that kind of results in those disagreements being relatively
0: uh, modest. How do you um, go about evaluating the 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 value that you're bringing to fund shareholders? How, what what what's you know everybody compares themselves to uh, different different benchmarks. You know the requirements to do that. Uh, how do you define success for shareholders?
1: Well, we have, we have a very high bar. Uh, we have we have three objectives for our clients. We want to Outperform the market on a risk-adjusted basis every year. Uh, Second, over a three-year period of time, we don't want to have anyone ever lose money with us. And then, over a, a full market cycle, or over again, over hopefully over the, over my lifetime re- running the strategy, we want to generate S and P 500 returns with less risk. So, you know, since I took over the strategy in June 30th of 2006, you know, we've done 102 percent of the market's return with, you know, less two-thirds of the market's volatility. And you know, not no no other balanced strategy has done that. So being able to generate equity-like returns with a materially lower risk profile is the ultimate objective of the strategy.
0: You had mentioned over uh, uh, you know a complete market cycle, and as I was listening to you just kind of your, describe your process earlier, it sounds like the process remains the same, uh, irrespective of market conditions: bull market, bear market, flat market. The process remains the same, but the but the decisions may be, may be different. Is that a fair characterization? Our process is always evolving. We always want to get better. Every year,
1: we look at our process and and say, what is it that we can do better every year? Not not like oh that stock didn't go well, but what is it that we can we could add to our our toolkit? What is it, is there another market inefficiency out there that we can start exploiting? Is there something that we've been doing wrong from a fundamental perspective? That we can just get better at over time, right? We we believe in this idea of continuous improvement. You know, we 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 want to get better every year, and we want to get you know, if we get better every year from a process standpoint, that will generate better returns over 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 a, over a long period of time. Uh, so you know, we're we're very very process focused. So thinking about where do you put your your risk bets on, and how much risk are you really taking? And you know, and a really important part of the strategy is finding those securities, whether it be in asset classes that have the best risk returns in the market. That's really what we're focused on. Uh,
0: a couple of times you mentioned uh, market inefficiencies and exploiting market inefficiencies. It also sounded like from your description that many of those inefficiencies are themselves rooted in uh, decision-making biases that the market overall uh, 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 suffers from. Is that is that a fair characterization? I don't want to put words in your mouth.
1: Oh, absolutely. That, that's exactly right. That's, uh, your, your point is a, is a great one. Uh, you know, I think when we think about why is it that when the, when the market goes down that people reduce reduce uh, reduce their risk profile, they sell cyclicals. What, why do they do that? I mean, again, as a former cyclicals analyst who covered autos, covered industrials, they were building products, companies, when, when those stocks go down for cyclical reasons, that's a great time to buy them. But why do people sell them, right? Because they're trying to maximize performance tomorrow, which is kind of a yeah, you know, no man's. It's not. It's not a great. You can't win at that game, as opposed to thinking one year out, two years out, five years out, right? You know, historically, you know, buying buying industrials when people think there's a recession to happen, or even during a recession, your returns are are awesome for industrials, uh, cyclicals during that period of time, right? So we, we're going to do what the history tells us, and not what maybe what our emotions tell us. So that's one efficiency. I, the other, I, I think, GARP investing is is one of the great market inefficiencies we talk about. And if you have a minute, I'll just I'll just spend a minute on GARP investing and and how powerful GARP investing is, because if you think about most managers are are kind of graded versus the Russell 1000 Value Index or the Russell 1000 Growth Index, um, and there is the, the problem with that is, you know, a lot of GARP stocks kind of fall in the middle. So if you're a, a value manager, you might look at a company that trades at you know 1.2 multiple. To the market, a you know, limited twenty percent premium to the market, you might say, "Well, that's too expensive for me. I'm I'm a value investor. That's that's too rich." And then a growth investor might look at the same company, and he might say, he or she might say, "Boy, that company, they only grow six percent organically, and we want companies to grow ten percent organically." So there's no natural buyer for those stocks. And then you say, "Well, oh, the hedge funds. What hedge funds want? Hedge funds want high, high volatility. They want to make a call on a quarter." and then that's that's what they do that's their that's their process and i think though maybe the last thing i would just say is you know there, there's a lot of academic research on this so why don't people you know utilities are again these are probably high single digit 10% kind of algorithm companies combination of the eps growth plus a dividend that have half the market's volatility you know a lot of people portfolio managers people in my my in my my job are not compensated on risk just returns uh, most people are compensated on absolute returns so the amount of risk they take is not something they, they, they focus on. And so if they look, at, they look at a utility and say, hey, utilities are 4% of the index, we just will ignore those. So you get these great companies that have a risk profile that is exceptional.
0: David, you mentioned uh, GARP a couple of times, growth at a reasonable price. Um, could you tell us a little bit about you know, the, the, kind of the, the hypothesis behind that style of investing? Uh, why, does it, why does it make sense?
1: Well, for, first of all, a couple of things uh one again it's it's only about we only characterize about four teams of the market as being kind of darpy stocks um I would say historically speaking if you have if you take a long term view, where are the highest returns in the market over time it's not value, it's actually not growth it's kind of stuff in the middle i mean that's just that's just the the reality of of the last forty or fifty years of returns is that's where the highest returns are uh, and two, it's also where the highest risk adjusted returns are so you know, growth tends to be a little more risky. Values, you know, value, depending on the, the composition of the value index, tends can be a little more risky. Actually, GARP not only has the highest returns, but the highest risk of returns. And again, we talked a little bit about, previously about, you know, this is where the market inefficiency is, right? We talked about all the reasons why these stocks trade at too low of a valuation, given their fundamentals. So anytime you can buy something for a structurally lower price, then it should be trading the market. That's great.
0: Yeah, I think at the heart of it is you. You hear a lot. You talk to a lot of people, even sometimes professionals, and they talk about growth, 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 and uh, what they pay for that growth is kind of an afterthought, which always seemed a little strange to me.
1: That's the that's your, your point. Is, is a great point. That's that's the issue with 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 growth stocks is that you know you, you typically grow. The, the reason why growth stocks typically underperform for a long period of time is that the valuations are so excessive that as their growth slows, just law of large numbers. Their multiple contracts, right? The beauty of GARP stocks is if they do it right, they deploy capital well. That you have a situation where over time the multiple can actually go up, and potentially if you deploy capital wisely, you know your 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 organic growth rate, your EPS risk can go up, right? So you have these you have these, you have these your your growth rate slowing over time, but you're hoping it's still high enough that it, that the multiple contraction doesn't eat into your total return. But with GARP, it's you got the best of both worlds. So if you do it right, you do it well. You got the you get the growth,
0: plus you get multiple going the right way. Multiple goes higher. David, we've been spending most of the time talking about uh, individual uh, individual stocks. Uh, for for the bond investor out there, how do you how do you think about uh, individual bonds and and how to evaluate those? What we're trying to do is we're trying to take as much risk as possible
1: and get as high a yield as possible, but up to a limit. We don't want to have anything where we think it's not money good. And so we want to make sure, as we think about our bond exposure, we want to own credits that we are highly confident in almost any scenario are still money good. So if you, look at, if you were to look at our, our portfolio in fixed income, what you would find is you know a lot of companies that have very, very high enterprise values. Some companies are levered four, five, six times, but sometimes you have enterprise values in these cases that are worth anywhere from 12 to 20 times. So you have a, a giant margin of safety. So essentially what you're doing in fixed income is you are giving up some liquidity because high yield bonds and leverage loans are not as liquid as treasuries, clearly, or even investment grade bonds. But in return for giving up a little liquidity, you're picking up 300, 400 basis points higher yield without any real risk of loss. So if you go through me and if you look at our names, again, it's 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 not only having that high enterprise value to dead level, but it's also buying companies that the EBITDA is not that volatile. So what do what do you own? What do we own? Things like dental companies, things like animal health hospitals, insurance brokerage, uh, you know, software, uh, those kind of you know business services companies, companies that the EBITDA doesn't change that much.
0: You've worked in it as an analyst. You've worked as a portfolio manager. You've worked as a CIO where, you know, to a certain extent, you're overseeing other portfolio managers. How has your perspective on investing changed as you've worn those different hats throughout your career?
1: Well, I would say, again, every firm is different. And so my role as CIO is not really overseeing other people's portfolios. And that's, not, that's, not, that's not really what I do. That's not, that's not the value add that I provide. I, I think the value add of a CIO is, again, not not doing growth is going to work or value is going to work or this is what GDP is going to be or this is what interest rate is going to be. That's, that's not a lot of value add. What my job is is to highlight market inefficiencies to the platform, to highlight things that the market is not focused on. So again, during the middle of COVID, I kind of put out an analysis saying, look, these are the kind of returns you're going to get by buying cyclicals if this environment plays out like a great financial crisis. You know, the platform, again, a lot of maybe a little younger analysts, even maybe some even younger portfolio managers, you've never really been through an environment like that and that kind of, that kind of 35% kind of sell-off. You, know, you have all this negative negativity in the marketplace. I need to step up and say, hey, look at the great returns, even if this place out like the great finance crisis. We should all be buying cyclicals right now. That, that's, that's something I need to do. Or you know a couple of years ago you know, with uh, tax reform, Say, hey, you know, look, the market is not putting any kind of optionality on this. This group of companies, if we have tax reform, they're going to give their earnings going to go up fifteen percent. Maybe we should overweight some of those companies. Or, you know, more recently, uh, you know, there's a, there's some risk around China and China and Taiwan over a unfortunately over the next ten year basis. There's some there's some risks. So we're doing deep dives into that to make sure people understand that risk and can model that and understand that risk. But it, it's about thinking about things that the market is not focused on identifying marketing efficiencies, and sharing those more broadly.
0: David, last question for you, um, because I think we're titling this episode, you know, how to think like a portfolio manager. What's one or two things that, that you've learned throughout your career that uh, a self-directed individual investor could apply to their own process of making uh, portfolio management decisions? I'd say a couple of things.
1: One, don't make investment decisions based on what the current macroeconomic consensus is. Yeah, I think I think some people say, okay, the economy is good. We're going to do this action because the economy is good. You're just chasing your tail when you do that because the economy is always changing, right? So if you're if you know, if your economy feels good, let's go buy cyclicals. Oh, now the economy's bad. Let's sell cyclicals. And you see, you're you're constantly kind of buying high and selling low. That's not so. Don't focus on, on that macroeconomic consensus. I'd say that that's one. And two, when markets go down. People feel that, the, that 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 they want to reduce risk, right? Uh, what What's happened in the immediate past, they kind of extrapolate into the future. That's not the way to do it. When, actually, historically speaking, when stock markets go down, when risk assets are cheap, that's when you want to be adding risk. And when things are expensive and feel good, uh, that's when you just want to take risk off. It's very counterintuitive, but that's just the history of how of how the markets tend to work. So again, I mean, it's it's you hear all these horror stories sometimes. Of people like ah, market was down twenty percent. I got scared, so I I I moved my cat my stocks into cash. It's exactly the wrong thing to be doing. When the market goes up twenty thirty percent, you shouldn't be adding adding to risk assets. You Should be taking money off risk assets. When things go down, you should be adding to risk assets. Uh, it's a little counterintuitive, but that's that's how you create value uh, over time.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, David Drew, this has been great. Lots of helpful, practical information. Thanks for stopping by.
1: My pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.
0: Next, to get a different perspective, I'm going to speak with someone who manages a passive index fund. At the time of this recording, Chuck Craig was Senior Portfolio Manager for Schwab Asset Management. In that role, he was responsible for the oversight and day-to-day management of International Equity Index Schwab Funds and Schwab ETFs. Prior to Schwab, Chuck worked at Guggenheim Funds, First Trust Portfolios, and PMA Securities. He holds a Master of Science degree in Financial Markets and Trading and is a CFA charter holder. Chuck, thanks for being here today. Good to be here, Mark. Uh, Chuck before we get into kind of the main body of the the interview I wanted to just ask you how you got into this business were you, were you a kid who was just always super interested in investing right from the very first time you had some some money from a part-time job or or is this something you kind of evolved into uh, as you became an adult
2: No I I really didn't uh know much about investing in growing up as a kid um I actually went into the Air Force for 8 years uh, out of high school And when I was in the Air Force, I became interested in my own personal investments. And and, uh, that led me, uh, that interest grew strong enough that I went back to college and got a degree in finance and and moved into the investment business. Um, Once I was in the business, it took me about 10 years before I finally found, I I guess, what I've determined to be my calling, which is uh, passive portfolio management.
0: So passive portfolio management, very different from active management. What's in the, what's in the job description of a passive portfolio manager?
2: Uh, yeah, passive portfolio management is really a, a very detailed and process-oriented uh, work. Um, our, our primary goal is to track the performance of an index as closely as possible. But we have a couple of other goals that we try to follow as well. One of those is we're trying to minimize or eliminate the tax consequences to the investors. And then another one is controlling trading costs. Uh, but along the way, we also have to worry about things like following regulatory rules. And then I'm an international uh, portfolio manager. So we have uh some, some complicated things that we need to understand, which is how do different markets uh handle things and what is actually allowable for a US investor to do in certain markets. And then we have to trade currency. As we uh, buy securities, we need to buy uh, foreign currency to uh, fund those trades. And as we sell securities, we need to trade out of that currency uh, and bring it back to U.S.
0: dollars. Uh, Chuck, before we get into some of the details, maybe if you could just give us a kind of a high-level view of the portfolio management process that tries to accomplish those objectives you just laid out.
2: Yeah, the process... uh, really really starts at the index. Um, So we are really trying to track our indexes very, very tightly. Um, And the indexes make uh, quite a few changes throughout the year. Um, And most of those changes are around uh, shares outstanding in a company. So companies, certain types of companies in particular are uh, often issuing more stock. Uh, Some companies are buying back stock. Uh, we see spinoffs of, of new companies out of uh, out of existing companies, and oftentimes companies are being acquired. So anytime one of those events happens uh, in an index, we'll, we'll typically make a change. And if the index makes a change, our first inclination is that we want to make a change, but it's not quite that simple. Um, we need to look at whether uh, the, the trade is actually warranted. And if it is warranted, how do we trade it efficiently at a price that's equal to or better than our index? Um, and we also want to make sure that we can do that in a very tax-efficient
0: manner. Chuck, are there situations where the index makes a change and you decide, well, we're, we're not going to replicate that change right away and we'll get to it over, over time because it's just too cost uh, inefficient to do it right away? uh th- th- there There
2: are some of those um, typically we our, our default is to try and make a change with an index um, however if a, if an index changes is, is sufficiently small, we may shy away from doing that and kind of let it catch up as we are investing cash or raising cash or ultimately at our
0: at our regular rebalances that occur uh, with the indexes. Chuck, sometimes indexes are adding securities. Sometimes they're dropping securities. When a company is dropped from an index, uh, is the in- inclination on your part to just immediately sell it all, or is it a little bit more complicated than that?
2: Uh, yeah, like I said earlier, I think our default is to try and match the the index treatment of a, of a security. However, um, the question sometimes isn't uh, about whether to sell, but how to sell. Um, Certainly in a lot of cases, uh, those sale decisions are made by, uh, are made based on the ability to tender shares to the, the issuing company or a third party who's trying to buy it. So we'll determine whether that's the best option or whether actually trading in the open market is the best option. Um, the, the other thing is obviously around the tax efficiency, and particularly in ETFs, we have special mechanisms to sell securities in a more tax efficient manner. So, depending on the cost basis of the security, we may choose to trade it in the open market, or we, we may be, may choose to utilize the special mechanism of what we call custom in-kind baskets to prevent
0: the fund from having a taxable gain. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the the size of the position. So, uh, an index has a list of companies that are in the that are in the index, and each of those companies has a weight associated with them. Uh, when do you know when, uh, you're, cl- you're close enough, uh, in what situations do you want to just be tracking? You want one, if the index has 10% of a company, you're going to own 10% of that company. And when is it okay to be a little bit, a little bit off?
2: yeah, well, our, our, um, our internal, uh, guidelines are very tight. So we do try to stay very close to the index. Um, however, we, we utilize some sophisticated tools to allow for small, what we call miss weights. Between our portfolio and the benchmark, so we utilize a, a sophisticated optimization engine, um, uh, some some internal software we have for uh, helping us be tax efficient, uh, particularly in the ETFs, um, and we uh, use some sophisticated uh, risk models as well that measure uh, the po- the the likelihood that we track very closely to the index. Um, We utilize those tools even more, uh, uh, I I guess, even more extensively during the rebalances where there are a lot of changes happening Um, during the, the rebalances, which are typically quarterly, you see a lot of securities being added, a lot of securities being removed because they no longer qualify for the index. And that causes basically every security in the index to change weight. Um, in those instances, we can be trading a few dozen to over a thousand securities in a portfolio. We obviously can't look at each one of those securities, so we need to utilize those sophisticated tools, uh, the optimi- optimization algorithms, and the risk models to help us uh, determine uh, what is a what is a uh, an acceptable level of
0: misweight from the from the uh, index. Yeah, and by acceptable me- metal or excuse me, by acceptable level, you mean you're tracking it really closely. But the cost of getting even tighter tracking would just be too high, uh, given given the fact that after tax returns, after expense returns, are ultimately what matters to 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 your shareholders.
2: Right, we're we're balancing managing active risk. That is the risk that we don't track our portfolio against those transaction costs and the tax efficiency every time we're making any kind of trade
0: uh chuck we're we're often on this uh on this show we're talking about decision making biases that people have that affect their financial decisions often in a negative way Uh, it would seem to me that given passive fund management index fund management is very is very rules driven uh there probably aren't a lot of these cognitive and emotional biases that uh, that get in the way of the process when you're managing money. Is, is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, Mark, I think that's very fair. Um, and it's, it's really a great question, because I, I think of, uh, of biases as a potential nemesis of a passive portfolio manager. For us to tightly track the performance of our indexes, we have to be very disciplined and follow a very disciplined process. Um, However, we're all humans, right? And, and we're investors. We follow markets. We favor or disfavor certain stocks, industries, countries. Um, and following that discipline process may have us buying or selling uh, securities in contradiction to our personal convictions at times. But following that uh, that process, having controls in place where one person isn't making a decision, um, it helps us to to prevent those biases from uh from
0: influencing our decisions as we're recording this chuck we've coming off come off a kind of a rough period in the in the markets uh u.s stocks down uh, you know, double digit levels same thing with international stocks is the process that you just described is that uh pretty consistent whether we're in a bull market or a bear market the process is what it is and it doesn't, you know, the goals don't really change. Therefore, the process doesn't change. Or is there something about bear markets that uh, give you something else that you've got to be thinking about and accommodating during your, during your trading? Yeah, I think for the, for
2: the most part, the process doesn't change because there's not a direct effect on, uh, on our process or decisions. However, what does affect us is investor behavior in those situations. If you think about bear markets, investors are tending to sell equity funds. Um, This requires us to raise cash. Um, And when we have to raise cash, often funds, if we're in a bear market, we probably just came out of a bull market. And uh, the funds, the the securities that we hold, have significant unrealized gains. Um, So it puts a greater emphasis on the tax efficiency when
0: we are seeing investors uh, liquidating out of funds. Chuck, ultimately, you're accountable to the shareholders in your in your fund. Uh, how do you want them to evaluate whether or not you're doing a doing a good job?
2: Yeah, I think I think the the key is how closely we we, uh, we tracked our index. How how close is our performance to our index's performance? Um, and have we done that in a in a low cost and low tax? consequence manner
0: so low low taxes or minimize taxes keep costs low track the index those would be the big three absolutely all right chuck uh, last question what's something uh that you've learned in kind of your career in managing these funds that is um, kind of applicable to people in their in their own portfolios either some of the decisions they make or the or the process that you're that you're following?
2: Yeah, Mark. I probably sound like a like a broken rep- record because I'm going to say, uh, following a discipline process, um, getting into this into this uh, into this career has taught me to, to be very disciplined in a lot of decision making, and I think that's a key for individuals. Uh, if individuals create a plan. Uh, and they follow that plan in a very disciplined manner, I think they're most likely to reach their goals just as I'm most likely to reach my goals as an index portfolio manager. And they're able to do it with uh, a least amount of stress. And, and you know, similarly, in my, in my role here, if I follow my, my uh, processes and I'm very disciplined, I don't mistrack my index and therefore
0: I don't have stress. Chuck Craig manages international index funds for Schwab Asset Management. Chuck, this has been great. A lot of of great, helpful advice on an area of the markets where, frankly, I don't think there's a lot of analysis as to how passive funds actually, actually operate. So this has been really illuminating. Thanks for stopping by. It's been good to be here, Mark. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, there's no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to competing in sports or operating a business. It's also clear after those interviews that there are dramatically different ways of managing money. So which one is better? I think it's best to take a step back and think of each investment, each fund you own, as performing a certain job. That job is one that contributes to achieving your goal as an investor. We talk on this podcast about diversification a lot. It's also impossible to predict with precision the future, and because of that, it's hard to forecast with certainty which styles of portfolio management will work well. It makes sense to me to employ funds with a variety of approaches and understand how and when those approaches are going to add value over time. It also makes sense to monitor those funds over time to make sure they're performing as expected and are continuing to employ the same investment strategy that attracted you to them in the first place. You also want to make sure that as your life changes that the funds you own still make sense given what you're trying to accomplish. Finally, one of our most important investing principles is to pay attention to costs and taxes. Fees matter whether you're evaluating active or passive funds and taxes are important if you're holding the fund in a taxable account. To learn more about mutual funds that might be right for you, go to schwab.com slash find mutual funds. That's schwab.com slash find mutual funds, all one word. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone who might like the show, please tell them about it and how they can also follow us for free in their favorite podcasting app. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Riepe, M-A-R-K-R-I-E-P-E. For important disclosures, see the show notes and schwab.com slash financial decoder.